This is InX, a show about inclusive design. I'm your host, Matt May. In this episode... Every year I go and do a little talk on neurodiversity for the first year psych residents at my university. And this is the kind of stuff I talk to them about. It's like, no, you have to like actually talk to people who have lived experience about what we want and don't assume that psychiatric medication is like the end all be all of access because it's it's really not. A conversation with Amy Hamurai. It is my great pleasure uh, to welcome Professor Amy Hamrai to the podcast. Thank you for joining us here. Thanks so much for having me. Amy Hamrai, they, them, is Associate Professor of Medicine, Health and Society and American Studies at Vanderbilt University and Director of the Critical Design Lab. Trained as a feminist scholar, Hemrise's interdisciplinary research spans critical disability studies, science and technology studies, critical design and urbanism, critical race theory, and the environmental humanities. They're author of Building Access, Universal Design, and the Politics of Disability, University of Minnesota Press 2017, and host of the Contra podcast on disability and design. With Kelly Fritch, Mara Mills, and David Serlin, Hemrai co-edited a special issue of Catalyst, Feminist theory, technoscience on crypt technoscience. Hemrise research is funded by the Social Science Research Council, the Smithsonian Institution, the Mellon Foundation, the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Arts, and the National Humanities Alliance. They're quoted by the New York Times, the Chronicle of Higher Education, National Public Radio, the History Channel, the Huffington Post, Art News, and others. And here I want to add the land acknowledgement before we begin. OCAD University acknowledges the ancestral and traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, and the Huron-Wendat. Amy and I are presently on the ancestral and traditional territories of the Duwamish and Coast Salish peoples and the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Shawnee, and Muscogee, or Creek people, who are the original owners and custodians of the land on which we stand and create. I want to talk about how you came up. What was the, the impetus for your original studies in feminist theory and how that has evolved over time. Sure. I have kind of a weird trajectory, I guess, and I use weird in a good way. I started out being very interested in the relationships between bodies and built environments very broadly. There are personal reasons for this and also scholarly reasons. And I was reading a lot of phenomenologies of architecture and things like that. And at the same time, I had a very keen interest in disability studies and feminist disability studies in particular. So when I was a graduate student at Emory University, which is in Georgia, I was working with Rosemary Garland Thompson, who is one of the founders of disability studies in the humanities um, and feminist disability studies in particular. And I was very lucky to be in a program that had very interdisciplinary training requirements. And in addition to pretty rigorous feminist theory training, we also had to take methods courses 
niches and specific disciplines. I was able to take methods courses, not only in history and anthropology, but also in architecture. And so I spent a summer semester at the Harvard GSD and I took courses at Georgia Tech. Really was thinking a lot about the question of how do architects think about their users? What are they imagining when they're trying to understand who's going to use something? And I learned all sorts of interesting things from just being in the architecture studio and and noticing what are the norms and forms of discipline and knowledge that circulate there. I ended up doing a dissertation project about the history of universal design in architecture. And then when I graduated and adapted my dissertation, rewrote it as a book, I expanded to also include fields like industrial design and all of the ways that the term universal design has taken on resonance and carried through very different fields. I currently teach at Vanderbilt University. I've been there eight and a half years and I teach in an interdisciplinary pre-med program called Medicine, Health and Society. And basically our students take science courses, but they also take courses in the history and anthropology of medicine, sociology of health, etc. And so I teach disability studies in that program. And I've been very lucky to get to work with really great colleagues who, you know, their interests intersect with mine in very interesting ways and kind of push me to think about things a little bit differently. And so while I've been at Vanderbilt, I also started the Critical Design Lab as a kind of alternative space to what is very prevalent on many campuses, campus maker spaces, but also the sorts of disability assistive technology labs that get lots and lots of funding from the Department of Defense and create high-tech prosthetics and things like that. And I was getting a lot of students coming to me wondering how they might approach design and technology through a more social model perspective and less of a kind of what Ashley Shu calls a techno-ableist perspective. And so the lab grew from there and I kind of took on all of these different types of projects that I was not anticipating doing originally. I learned GIS for mapping and I co-curated an art exhibit and I've done a lot of different types of accessibility consulting and things like that. Bringing up the social model, I think this is a great opportunity. I think a lot of the people that are going to be listening to this have not really engaged with disability from a model's perspective. It's been experiential in mm-hmm. its framing. I want to break down the the social model specifically because it does end up being tied into the idea of universal design, of inclusive design. To separate that out, we have the medical model that the disability is reflected by a threshold level below which one is disabled. That can be your vision, your hearing, your cognition, motor function, you name it. And that it is essentially the responsibility, or at least it's the burden of the person that's disabled to raise themselves up to the level that they are peers in society in any action that they want to do. And the social model turns it on its head. I use the the book, everyone here spoke sign language to talk about this. In uh, Martha's Vineyard, up until the early 20th century, there was this village called Chilmark where 25 to 30% of people had 
hereditary deafness. So the idea of sign language was not an accommodation. It was just simply a form of difference that everyone participated in equally. So if you spoke, if you signed, everybody knew that that was a part of the rule of play. And so that kind of gets to the social model of this, which is it is a disconnect between the person and the environment. But the responsibility doesn't sit only with an individual, that it is a societal failing to meet the needs of that person in that space. You can expand on that, definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I agree with everything you said. And I think a lot of people in disability studies, which is my field, focus on elements of the medical model, the idea that it pathologizes disability instead of treating disability as difference. And I think you've also highlighted a really important part of it, which is that it's very individual. So when we think about designing supports for disabled people often in those kinds of like high-tech labs and things. It's not that there's something wrong with doing that. It's that it's very individualized. Someone who, for example, acquires a wheelchair that can climb the stairs, which is something that gets shown in the media a lot. That's just for that one person. It doesn't change the fact that everyone else who uses wheeled mobility is encountering those stairs and facing a barrier. And The other part of the medical model that I have done a lot of my own scholarly historical research is about is the field of rehabilitation and the way that that field was responsible for framing disability in the 20th century as an occupational problem, like a threat to industry that needed to be corrected. There was this idea that there were functional and dysfunctional bodies. And if you were dysfunctional, you would either get rehabilitated or you would go on disability. And there are whole systems that are created around that. From a social model perspective, or even taking that further, like the work that we do in the critical design lab is from a disability culture perspective. We say that design isn't just about functionality. It's also about art and creativity and aesthetics and shared belonging. So we're often creating things that do not make us better at our jobs in any way, but they give us access to a cultural experience. At the same time, what is at stake in all of that is justice. That's the social model part, but even further, uh, disability justice perspective that says, you know, we don't all have to be productive all the time or at all in order to be recognized as valid and worthy human beings whom society ought to care for and nourish and make life possible and enjoyable for us. Those are some of the values that I would say are really central to my work as well. And that sometimes put me at odds with people who are working in the same space who are really focused on, for example, how do we get all the autistic people to work in high tech industries and stuff like that? And I'm like, how do we get all the autistic people like the ability to take a nap and get some rest and not have to conform to society so much? So, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about this just uh, as you were talking about your model and I've heard, you know, the, the identity model of this and talking from my perspective, you know, as an ADHD or there's the trope of the superpower, right? I use this as like sliders, you know, it's controls on a big board and mm. the controls can be zero through 10,000. Actually, the human capability is just on such a wide range, but the idea that somehow 
this disability is a magical power or something like that, which just feeds right back into that consumerist loop that now I'm a more marketable thing because I can be a manager or whatever. And I I think the part that makes me gravitate more toward the identity model is that I want to say sometimes this really sucks, you know, that, that this isn't something that I enjoy every aspect of. I don't enjoy in, you know, all of the aspects of things that I have to bring with me to work that are not in my skill set. Mm-hmm. I don't appreciate that there are, are times where I know in the day I'm mentally not fit to be doing the work, but I have to do it anyway. And that is a different kind of voice to bring to the situation, that it isn't just that you have to just sort of be the shiny, happy remarkable ADHD person, but that you can be the normal average ADHD person and still have value in society. Yeah, absolutely. The word that gets used for this often in a physical disability context is super crip. It's like, oh, look at all the genius stuff that that person's accomplishing. And the super crip never gets to talk about their access needs. They're basically just this wonder that is created for the comfort of non-disabled people. I also have ADHD and I'm autistic and something that I have been noticing with great interest is that during the pandemic, because of social media, a lot of people are starting to notice like, oh, I have some ADHD traits. I should maybe look into this further or get an assessment. And I was talking to my partner the other day who's in that category and she was like, Isn't it interesting that like literally so many people, everyone we know is suddenly like, do I have ADHD? But the world is created in such a neurotypical way and with such neurotypical standards. And that sometimes we place those standards on each other because we're so enculturated in that world. Um, So as people develop identity around that, I think that really interesting things are happening. I've noticed that it's made it easier for me to talk about my access needs with people because they have more of a frame of reference because they watch someone's TikTok video or something like that. And I never thought that that's what it would take, but it makes sense because of the pandemic too. So many people are encountering new access needs that they didn't know they had because we are in an even more digital, virtual kind of setting a lot of the time, or at least those of us who are working in knowledge industries. I will be very interested to see how that identity shift changes the number of people who identify as disabled and how it might shift even kind of what is possible in terms of accessibility. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm going off script now because this I think is important talking specifically about ADHD, because in this whole last two years, it's almost like at least the majority of us have had our own lab experiment. We've taken all of the stimulus away. So it's very easy to to have ADHD masked in a place where there's so much noise, meeting after meeting after meeting, context switch after context switch, mm-hmm. that now that people have sat still about it, then they see what's actually happening in their brains and their neurochemistry. And in all of this time, literally for me, I have people come to me all the time talking about, I think I might have ADHD. Literally 90% of the people that I have talked to about this have been assigned female at birth. Mm -hmm. And it's 
the idea of ADHD was white boys, more or less, in North America, and that was it. There's two pieces to this. First off, yes, welcome. <laughs> like you, There are systems of care for ADHD neurochemistries, and there are medications, and there are behavioral treatments for that. And then I also see like the second wave of this where people who have received those supports then sort of retroactively come back and say, if only I had been a boy when I was growing up. And and this is the part where I personally push back <laughs> because the treatments, quote unquote, that we received, if we were medicated in school, if we were given behavioral treatments in school, were not for our benefit. Mm -hmm. They were to make us more pliable, more docile, to keep us from being behavioral problems in mm -hmm. school. Yeah. And so that idea of there having been a great amount of privilege put in, into this was there's some societal aspect of that for that issue. Yeah. But we also have to realize that when we talk about treatment, the treatment is for what purpose, right? That Absolutely. it is often because the dominant part of the culture wants us to behave in a certain way. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I remember when my younger brother was in elementary school and my parents really had to fight for him not to be put in situations of mandatory compliant behavior or becoming medicated. And I spent a lot of my life being like, I have similar access needs to people who are labeled as X, Y, and Z. But it wasn't until I was older that I got a diagnosis. And even then, it was just like a very weird experience because I got a diagnosis in order to get accommodations at work. And the person who diagnosed me was like, accommodations, why would you want to do that? You can just take all these medications, but first you have to take this other one because you have anxiety and like all these things. My experience of being medicated for ADHD was not great. And I actually opted to be unmedicated, which affects my life and how I navigate the world. And a lot of things are a lot harder for me, but I also feel more centered in myself. I'm able to be more neurodivergent in certain ways because I don't take medication. It doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for my body. Um, but that thing about these treatments being framed as accommodations, I think brings us back to the medical model too. Of course, that should be available to people who want it. And some people don't want it and some people do. But at the same time, there's so much more that we could be doing in terms of access that even just on the level of recognizing that people's brains work differently and creating environments that support that or creating social norms that don't say, hey, act this way, pay attention this way, sit in a meeting for three hours, or, you know, like all of that stuff. We could be having better cultures of accessibility that are informed by and based on the access needs of people who have ADHD, even before we get to the issue of medication. I've been very frustrated at times with healthcare providers who don't know how to write an accommodations letter because what they think is that medication fixes you. So why would you need to ask your boss for more time on X, Y, and Z when you could just make your brain work faster? And 
to me, that goes against the spirit of the ADA, like completely. It's like they need ADA training. They need to understand that that even exists and is something that they can do. So that's something I've thought about a lot. Every year I go and do a little talk on neurodiversity for the first year psych residents at my university. And this is the kind of stuff I talk to them about. It's like, no, you have to like actually talk to people who have lived experience about what we want and don't assume that psychiatric medication is like the end all be all of access. Cause it's, it's really not, it helps in certain ways up to a point, but that doesn't stop all of these other expectations and norms from being placed on us. Yeah. One of my recent LinkedIn posts of all places for me to talk about this is LinkedIn. I mentioned that I've been on medication for the last two or three years, and it's probably the fourth time that I've tried. And I had sort of hit a wobble. I was changing things up too much, and it was just leaving me exhausted, lower than my baseline functionality. Mm -hmm. And the ability for me to just stop, take a beat, realize I'm not going to achieve everything that I need to do for the next week and then come back up. It's something that just being honest about, like having the ability to do that without nobody's going to fire me for saying something like that. That itself is liberating because it lets people say it's more than just, oh, take that pill and you'll be fine. There is so much more to, to doing that. I had that as one of the treatments that was given to me. And it doesn't do anything except make you more hyper- you know, it made me able to goof off more efficiently. <laughs> there wasn't anything inherent in this pill. And even for autism, getting the diagnosis is just kind of like, okay, so you have autism. These are the supports that are available to you, but there's no medication. There are no, there's no real common thing. It's really, it's an entree into understanding what the individual aspects of that mean for you. Right. And from there, the self-agency has to come in because now you can actually articulate, this is why I don't like being in a loud and noisy room. This is why fragrances affect me. That helps you to explain that situation. But if you're still doing it in front of a monolith, something that's not going to change at all, then that doesn't really bring you any closer to justice just to simply know yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that I had this idea in my head because I had been masking for so long and living with my suspicions as like a secret or my self-identification as a secret, except to my closest people, I really thought that when I got a diagnosis, I would just be like, okay, everybody and like come out. And then there would just be all these people waiting for me to come join in community with them. What I actually found was that pretty much all of us are really traumatized by all the experiences that we've had to navigate. And there is not as much kind of shared collective community experience around it as it could be. And I think that that's something that's really changing now. I think that that has to do with a kind of popularization of the discourse around neurodivergence or people being very clear and identifying that way from much earlier on. So some of that is shifting the way that power operates or the risks that are posed to publicly identifying in certain ways. And then, of course, there's the issue of who has the privilege to not talk about stuff like that. There are people who are pathologized and policed and they're 
divergence from the norm is not as easily masked, not only gender, but also racial dimensions to that. So I just think about all of that a lot. My ideal is that disability culture is a framework that we can relate to through our identities in a more collective way. And that's just not always possible. That tells us the work that we have to do to make the world a place where that could be possible one day. And I think that dovetails into the idea of crypt technoscience. So I, I want to get into that specifically because this was a term that you have put forth. And I think that the important part of this is that agency that you have you that in order for there to be some kind of affirmative technoscience around disability, there have to be people that have agency in that space. Then it becomes a dialectic. There's a community that's going about it on their own and sort of brings back what they found and its connection to to mutual aid of you know disabled people helping and supporting one another and finding a praxis for doing a certain thing on their own. I'd like for you to talk about that, to expose the political commitments of crypt technoscience and so forth, if you could. So the word technoscience comes from the field of science and technology studies, and it describes the way that any designed thing or technology that is created relies on certain forms of knowledge and specifically science. But science isn't just what experts do in a lab. There are also forms of science that come from communities of experience. So the disability activists in the 60s and 70s who were reclaiming the word CRIP, they were also doing a whole lot of design, of technology, of architecture, urban design, urban planning. And they were doing this from the perspective that disabled people ought to have access to the broader mainstream society, but shouldn't have to accept the norms and standards of that society, especially the standards that say that disabled people all must become hyper productive and hyper able. I use the term cryptechnoscience in my work and in my book, Building Access, to look at some of those histories of how disabled people not only create our own designs and our own technologies, but also do it towards specific political ends. And this is what distinguishes this concept from just a kind of DIY design approach or some of the other concepts that are really useful that exist, like Arceli Dokumachi's concept of micro-activist affordances, which she uses to analyze what happens when in a home kind of relationship between a disabled people and a, a disabled person and a family member when they're like adapting tools for daily use and coming up with different ways of relating. I am really interested in crypt technoscience as something that operates on a different scale and for different publics. And that includes those things for sure, but has a specific anti-normative kind of agenda. And that's the crypt part as well. And so there's so many examples of this. Some are historical, some are more contemporary, but they all point to a kind of disability culture perspective on technology, I would say. I think a part of this is about 
the means of making, you know, of creating. And I think you talk about knowing making Mm -hmm. and maybe you can talk about this and I want to throw a layer onto that. Yuta Treveranis, my advisor, head of the Inclusive Design Research Center, talks about epistemicide, the Mm. idea of the destruction of the means of knowing, of learning things and who gets to decide how something is made or how knowledge is created is a critical aspect of this. Yeah, absolutely. Part of what is significant about cryptechnoscience historically and in the present is that it's a response to that rehabilitation and medical model episteme. A lot of the people who are pushing for accessibility in architecture and technology in a lot of the 20th century were not just disabled people, but also these experts who spoke in the name of disabled people, often with very nationalist and capitalist values. And so it was very important for disabled people to be able to refuse medical models, to refuse the systems of classification and diagnosis, and to propose alternative methods. So at the same time that they were doing all this design work, they were also doing things like coordinating resources and access and personal care attendants. People were becoming nurses so that they could care for other disabled people. People were becoming architects so that they could design for other disabled people. The generation of a knowledge base as an alternative kind of field or system of knowledge was really central and important. And we see this happening in the contemporary context in so many ways. I think we were talking about ADHD earlier, something that I've really benefited from is talking to my friends who also are neurodivergent in different ways and struggle with executive function to share our hacks and our tools that we use and what works for us and what doesn't or what do we do about the side effects of certain medical treatments or things like that. And that's the same sort of thing. It's like people creating an alternative knowledge base because what is afforded in the kind of mainstream medical context doesn't go far enough to meet our needs. Great. We're going to take a pause here and we'll be right back with Amy Hamrai. InX is a major research project by me, Matt May, as part of the Master of Design degree program at OCAD University in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Episodes and transcripts of this podcast can be found at inx.show. That's I-N-E-X dot show. Follow InX on Twitter at I-N-E-X podcast. Okay, we're back. And I want to talk about universal design as a terminology and its connection to inclusive design. The book that you wrote talks about the universal design as its practice historically and in the built environment. I wrote a book in 2008 with Wendy Chisholm called Universal Design for Web Applications that sort of tried to apply those principles to the, the web as it was in 2008 for what it's worth. So my name had been associated with Universal Design as a result of that. And my evolution toward inclusive design changed as I realized some of the, the impacts and the histories of it. But maybe you could talk about how you experienced it and the, the ups and downs of it. Sure. I think I first encountered the term universal design when I was in graduate school, studying disability studies and then being exposed to people where I lived who did that work. But as I investigated it from a historical 
historical perspective. Initially, I was going to do an ethnography of a universal design lab. So I was going to go into the lab and be like, okay, what is actually the method of universal design? How are they doing this? And I got there and I noticed that people either did one of two things. They either repeated back the same words about what universal design was, and almost there were talking points. I was noticing that there was this kind of, oh, it's this and it's that, and it benefits everyone and whatever. And I was wondering, okay, how do I critically unpack this a little bit? And I was getting very different accounts of historical background because so many of the people that developed this concept are still alive and still working. And it's really... I am the same age as the term universal design. The first time that Ronald Mace, the disabled architect, published about it in 1985, that was the year that I was born. And so I was thinking a lot about what is the history of this very recent concept and where might parts of it have been found earlier and how might its meaning have changed. What I discovered when I was doing the research for my book, which ended up being more historical, but also based in interviews and ethnographic data, is that before this term was used, there were other terms that were used to mean a similar kind of thing. So barrier-free design and architecture for a long time described the idea that there are architectural barriers and they should be removed for greater accessibility. And that if we did that, it would benefit everyone, not just disabled people. And then through the work of the disability rights movement, there was a lot of activism to get barrier-free design to be a mandate of the law. And there were several laws before the Americans with Disabilities Act that tried to mandate this and failed. And then the ADA happened and it was much bigger and toothier and all of this stuff. And the concept of universal design in architecture emerged five years prior to the ADA. So in this time when architects, disabled architects and their allies were trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do to get architects in general to even think about accessibility. And they were creating seminars for either through the American Institute of Architects and doing continuing education and all of these things. And they were just throwing out all of these options just to see what would stick. And universal design was one of them. It was a rhetorical move to say, okay, what if we call it this? And what if we say this, this, and this? Then the ADA passed and suddenly everything was about compliance with the law. A compliance framework, it's a type of accountability. It's good. It says, here's the bare minimum you have to do. It's transformative. It has a huge impact. But at the same time, people were treating it as this thing that they begrudgingly had to do. So the people who were advocating for universal design were like, okay, let's go back to this term and say, this is what we do when we go beyond compliance, when we go beyond the law. That's not what it meant originally at all. Originally, it just meant that when you design for disabled people, you benefit non-disabled people as well. And in that time, like from the late 1990s, when the principles of universal design were created in 1997 through now, like 25 years later, there's just been a lot of experimentation. And this concept very quickly went into technology 
web accessibility. I would say in some ways there has been much more like iteration in that world, in that format and media than there has been in architecture. And has taken on so many different meanings. And as there's new terminology or other terminology that is preferred because there's so much baggage associated. No one wants to claim the concept of the universal. There's a lot of critique of the idea that a design could really benefit everyone. Like, why would we say that? Why wouldn't we try to create better designs for people's specific needs? And it's probably just not as useful as it was originally intended to be. But I also don't think that a lot of the people who used the term originally were that wedded to it necessarily. They were just being like, all right, what happens if we say this? Oh, oh, this corporation is going to take this up and that's better than what they were doing before. So let's see what they do with that. I don't think that anybody was necessarily hanging their hat on universal design, producing disability justice to the fullest extent possible. But now that we have other frameworks and goals, we can look back on that history more critically and notice where did it work and where did it maybe have some other consequences? Yeah. And one of those consequences that I can think of, and is probably the reason that universal design caught on at the time that it did, because there was a civil rights piece of legislation, the Americans with Disabilities Act, that's there. And then there was the definition of what do you mean by that? And so that's where we get the ADA architectural guidelines, ADAG. And the idea of creating a baseline that everybody has to meet makes it easy for there to be a way to satisfy those requirements. It's code compatible. And a lot of what ends up happening from that point forward is that it's not even called universal design anymore. It's just called architecture. You need to do this and this in order to meet the requirements to open your building. And this is where I think the most damage happens. And none of it was, I think, intentional, but what I see with disability rights juxtaposed against any other form of human difference is that disability rights end up being about compliance and then all other forms of civil rights tend to be about equality. More nebulously defined, but about economic access, ability to work, to participate in society, etc. So when we take this into computer science, to developing software, we have accessibility as this thing, which is a legal requirement and has the web content accessibility guidelines behind it. Then we have inclusion, representation kinds of issues for, for everything outside of disability for the most part. And that leaves two huge gaps, right? That the actual representation and inequality issue in, in the disabilities sphere is ignored. And also any real access issues that might affect any other community is also ignored. Yeah, uh, We've turned it into a technical policy mm-hmm. and then in doing that, we've extracted the humanity of or the individuality of all of the stakeholders in, in the community, which in itself is immensely diverse. Yeah, this is exactly like this is a really good example of the concept of knowing making, because the reason why 
that has happened is because there is such a functionalist understanding of disability and accessibility has been reduced to a usability problem. And this happens, I think, a little bit with designing for gender inclusivity sometimes, too, where it's, okay, there's this body. It's different from the norm. How does it work? How do we solve, like, how do we engineer a technical solution that would solve this? That same approach has been used since the mid-19th century to think about disability in industrial contexts. Industrial managers in the 19th century were like, okay, got to make the efficient factories. Oh, there are these bodies that are different. Bodies are not standard. They're such wild cards. We have to control their difference and standardize them and make everyone work and produce the same. That means that there isn't a justice-centered understanding of disability shaping how accessibility codes operate. And it's a little different in the architectural or urban context because it is about, okay, like how do we make sure the environment is able to be adaptive and usable for all the different kinds of people who might use it. But even then, everything is based on a specific knowledge base on some citation of scientific evidence. And so it is fraught in that way because it is often not based on how disabled people actually understand ourselves and what we want. And even if if it was, it would probably only represent some people and, and not everybody. And this is the thing that is tricky about design and producing things that are for mass consumption or use. An alternative to a kind of checklist or standardization approach that goes in a totally different direction is what in my lab we call protocols. There's a concept of protocol and design, which is like, what are the standard steps you might take towards producing something? But also in many cultural contexts, there are protocols that are like, how do we behave towards each other? How do we treat our elders? Who is respected? How are people treated as human beings? A lot of our design work is creating protocols for helping people come into the middle of a design situation and ask more critical questions about it, not just to produce something that's really functional, that works and is usable, but something that kind of doesn't work. And then you're left being like, oh, wait, what, how do I do this? This is obviously not working for this purpose. Like, how do I, how do I work out this problem? And I think it's very productive in a non-capitalist sense to be put in that kind of situation, to be put in like a difficult situation and have to reach for how do I learn more and connect more with disability communities in order to solve this problem that is not solvable just on the basis of a normative assumption of how people use things. That is actually really a great segue into the definition of inclusive design. And so we can talk about this, that for the Inclusive Design Research Center, the definition is inclusive design is design that is inclusive of the full range of human diversity with respect to age, language, culture, gender, age, and other forms of human difference. And as far as the methodology behind it, there's always, is there a checklist for inclusive design? No, that's not the point. The, the idea is not a bell curve or trying to refine by 1% what the average person can do. It is looking for the most unaveraged, the people that have been left out of the system and working from the outside in, in terms of the capabilities instead of the, the inside out. I look at it as like a bell curve from the top. There are the people 
that we refer to as marginalized. And and the reason that they're there is that the system was not designed for them. Thinking about it from the outside, looking at the range of abilities and access points to the system really defines that. I think of tax season as a really great example of this. You just There are so many different like loopholes, tricks, tips, things that you need to know there that are opaque to so many people because the information isn't there or that there's so much of it that is difficult to process. And so a lot of these things that we say, oh, we created a tax credit for this. What if you didn't make any money? What if you're outside of the economic system? What if you're just not able to spend the time to find the things to get the support or me? I'm distracted and I don't keep notes very well of the things that I paid for. So the system itself is not designed for us. It's designed for tax preparing companies to get more money out of us. It's finding what actually would work for the greatest number of people that accommodates all of the ways in which things go wrong, gives you the set of things to evaluate, to find the best pathway forward. Instead of saying, we're going to meet this bar that was defined 35 years ago for this purpose. Yeah, I think it's really helpful to name an aspirational goal that is so broad and requires so many layers of consideration because it also enables designers to tap into different types of knowledge bases than what they would typically consider. To use the example of architecture, like ergonomics, the way that many people were designing physical objects and spaces for, you know, 80 years of the 20th century was based on anthropometric data that was taken from World War II soldiers. And that was very limited and had to be updated. But if we're going beyond just like how much space does someone take up inside of a car or their clothing or whatever, and we're talking about things like culture, that means that designers have to read ethnographies and they have to have a really complex and critical understanding of culture and and learn about how to not be reductive or learn how to question the concept of objectivity. And these are all good things to do when you have the power to shape the world. And they are also very frustrating things to do because they don't give you easy answers for what do you build with it. My dad is an engineer, so he's always, when I talk about my work, he's okay, but what do you build with it? What if you can't build with it this thing and it then informs the stuff that you do? The architect Joel Sanders did this amazing project called Stalled with his design firm where they created a prototype for an airport bathroom that incorporates different different kinds of disability access, different sorts of things around caretaking of children or family members. There are places for people to do ritual ablutions for prayer, all sorts of stuff. And it addresses safety and privacy within the container of a bathroom. I thought that the way that they did it and all the people they brought on board to inform it and the types of research that they did were really interesting because what they came up with was something that maybe 
in practice will not be perfect to use, but in its form and in its background explorations reveals how the bathroom itself is a space that is intersected by gender and culture and and race and disability and religion and all of these things. And so it sets a different standard for what can then be designed in the future and what forms of knowledge have to shape it. To me, that's the way to create new norms, to go beyond compliance by showing within the material form all the forms of knowledge that had to shape that thing. As you were talking about this, what really gets me about this is you actually need to be in dialogue with people. And it's not something that a lot of people are really comfortable with. And that discomfort ends up being something that perpetuates injustice. That if you do not have community with somebody and you're talking to them about an issue specifically to being trans, uh, to being a wheelchair user, to any aspect of that difference, then you will drive the conversation more toward the mainstream part of this. And you'll start to marginalize the difference between yourself and the person that you're talking to. And a lot of people respond to that by not doing the work. That Mm -hmm. it's easy to just pull yourself out of that conversation and then just really look at it from above and say, oh, we're helping. Yeah, absolutely. A part of that is just, I think, designers need to be at least mini researchers that's my perspective on this they need to actually understand if not at a deep methodological level how to conduct meaningful actionable research but the ability to have the conversations that when somebody is raising an issue about something that any given designer is able to respond and to understand that concern not to be empathetic and it, it becomes a skill of yours that you become the expert in something that you actually don't participate in, but that you are understanding progressively how deep the rabbit hole goes, that you really understand the true range of diversity that's out there instead of just narrowing it down to the, the little pieces and parts that, that you have there. Yeah, absolutely. There are two things that I was thinking about while you were talking about this that are related, and I hadn't actually thought about the relationship before. But one is what we could call anticipatory access. This is something that there's a lot of tension around, I think, when we're talking about like universal design, inclusive design, because on the one hand, it's very common and valid for people, disability activists, to want spaces, technologies that already anticipate our needs. So what we want is to be able to go and use something and not to have to ask for access or go to an event and certain things are in place. There's captioning, there's ASL. And at the same time, there's a tension because nothing about us without us. We don't want other people to assume what our needs are or to assume that they understand how to meet our needs without asking us first. And this brings up issues of like, where do we standardize access and where do we maintain a kind of open-ended commitment and curiosity? Is it enough to say every event has to have cart captioning or every event has to have ASL as a standard? 
There's probably other stuff that there needs to be too, but if nobody's actually asking deaf people or hard of hearing people what they want and need, then we risk creating a standard form of access or just doing the bare minimum again and not creating situations in which there's like an open dialogue or curiosity about what people's access needs are like. Or I'm somebody who needs fragrance-free spaces and I've had a lot of trouble around people just assuming that they know what that means and being like, oh, I'm wearing essential oils, so that's fine or whatever. And they actually end up hurting me because they made that assumption because they didn't maintain curiosity. And so there's like an element of access that has to include consent around what counts as access for me. Don't tell me you've met my access need or don't assume that for me. But then the second dimension of this that is important is this piece about designers becoming researchers or thinking like researchers. When I was writing my book, I spent quite a bit of time with people who are interested in evidence-based design, which is based on evidence-based medicine. And I read all of these kind of methodological textbooks for design research. And I was often very dissatisfied with both the methodologies and the way that evidence was being applied because there are literally websites that you can go to where someone has taken a scientific article, reduced it to a few takeaways, and then said, therefore, do these actions in design. And to me, that messes, misses a lot of the complexity of knowledge that within a research framework, like we would qualify and situate the knowledge, right? We would say this might not be generalizable or we found this in this case, but further research is needed. And it produces situations where designers are like, oh, our design is based in research. Right now I'm doing a project on livable cities and sustainability and stuff. And there's just so many examples where greenwashing happens because someone is, oh, I created this thing. Research shows that a natural light boosts productivity. So it's great that we spent all this money on all these big windows for this building or whatever. And it's okay. Yeah, maybe, but that's not actually the point of seeking out greater knowledge about users and their experiences and stuff. And so I think that's something that needs to happen is a more like critical approach to research as well, informant design education, that sort of thing. Yeah. What do you think is the state of design education really? Because I get the impression that the ideas of inclusive design, much less accessibility, are just not really taught at, at a university level in design fields. It's something that we tend to have to to train people in the field to to do, even if it is just at a basic level of understanding. And even then it tends only to be in the accessibility realm about things that a graphic designer is really attuned to, font sizes, colors, etc. I think that there needs to be a much greater literacy about what disability means. And I'm wondering is that a place for the design schools to be stepping in and actually doing that teaching and not just with disability, but with indigeneity, with race, gender, sexuality, age, 
all of the, the kinds of diversity that people are designing for so that they're not just coming out in their 20s designing for other 20-somethings when there's this whole rest of the world that's being left out of the, the things that they're working on. Yeah. Yeah, this is a really important question. And I th- my sense is that it's different in different design fields. In architecture, for example, there's been begrudging, like maybe here's like a token disability class like here and there at some schools, but some schools have entire programs. So it just depends on where you go. After the murder of George Floyd in 2020, I noticed because I was getting invited to speak more at architecture schools, there's, oh, our curriculum is so white male. Like, how do we change this? What do we need to do? And so there's a supplementary programming that comes in. People brought in to give talks and do seminars, but less so changes to licensure and that kind of thing. I don't know about graphic design necessarily. I can't speak to that, but a great person to talk to would be Jen White Johnson, who's a a Black disabled neurodivergent graphic designer, actually teaches graphic design and does interesting curricular interventions. But I know that where I teach. We don't have a design school, but we have quite a bit invested in design thinking as a kind of corporate discourse has been important in the universities. And so I teach classes that students can take that count towards a design thinking credential. And the training that we got for that was very like human centered design, like Donald Norman kind of stuff. But I was basically the only person being like, okay, but there are different kinds of humans. So how are we accounting for any kind of difference in this process and the way that it's laid out? Disability is sometimes treated as a special case. Human difference is not really part of that so much. The design thinking thing has gotten a lot of criticism specifically because while it doesn't say so, it still recenters the designer as the person that is the agent. And then the user is the recipient of all of this ridiculous skill that that they have brought to the situation. One of the aspects of inclusive design as is practiced at OCAD is about participatory action research and co-design. Not only are we bringing people into this conversation, but with a great deal of agency as to what direction this work takes, there is a sense of equanimity. Everybody has power in the room, that it isn't just a researcher pulling the strings or a designer that is just making little modifications to a train that's already been built and is rolling down the track. That maybe the train isn't what you need. Maybe it's a bunch of bicycles. Maybe it's a a few carts. But that is the the key part of this, that it isn't just paper over it at the end with a diversity study or something to that effect. I feel like design thinking just brings people back to I have acquired this information from this community. I will add that to my set of specialties and and still makes the designer sort of the center of that universe. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that is then reflected in the experiences that disabled people often have in design thinking kinds of contexts where when people are brought in as user experts or need knowers, like that kind of language and treated as consumers basically and not as designers. And this is something that Crypt Technoscience, I think, tries to intervene in. Yeah, I've heard stories from colleagues who are disabled and are like co-teaching the disability design class and basically treated in that context as 
just like a user and not as somebody who's actually also a professional designer. I don't know. There's just, there's so much feminist criticism of this as well. The construction of power in the figure of the designer and how do we unseat that? And certainly co-design participatory research is one way to do that. A dream that I have that I don't know if one day I will ever fulfill is to create some sort of standalone graduate school for disability and design in as many fields as possible that would basically train students in disability culture and disability studies. And then they could take that back and go become a licensed architect somewhere else or whatever. But to create like a different institutional structure in which all of those relationships are questioned and unseated and the way that the curriculum is developed isn't based on historical knowledge structures necessarily nor is it based on the kind of funding imperatives that tend to define contemporary universities under those conditions maybe it would be possible to teach students in a different way And I dream of that. I'm always just like trying to figure out how to make that happen. But it's hard to think about how to make that happen within the existing structures that exist for sure. We're gonna take a break. We'll be right back with Amy Amrai. On the next episode of Inax. You can't talk about colonization of any sort in the United States and Canada without having an indigenous perspective. So that's been, that's been my badge. So it's really gave me a little bit, not a little bit, a lot of purpose to life. And I know, and I'm pretty confident to say that I'll probably be working until, until I'm a hundred years old. A conversation with Sadie Redwing. And we're back and we want to talk about equity now. My framing of this, of the idea of inclusive design is that it's a tool, but the tool needs a purpose and the purpose is equity. So if inclusive design is the what, then equity is the why. And I want to ask you either from a personal perspective or from a professional perspective, societal perspective, what does that term equity mean to you? I guess I always think about there's like this like image or meme that circulates that's people trying to look over a fence and equality is like they're standing on the same height box, but the people are different sizes and equity is like different heights of boxes, giving people different stuff that they need to all look over the fence. I definitely think that's a good baseline societal goal. It's definitely not something I would argue against. I do wonder sometimes like equity is still very much in this like liberal framework though, right? Of everyone should have equal opportunities to get a job and go to school and that sort of stuff. And I want that at the same time that I want people to not have to do those things necessarily in order to be part of society and live a good and fulfilling life. And I would want systems that support people's thriving regardless of what they're able to produce, which is maybe also a form of equity, just like on a different system scale. I I wanted to just uh, tease that piece out because 
I see that image and it's usually it's like a baseball game that's over the fence and everybody's looking over it. It's access to a commercial event. Yeah. (laughs) The the way that this is framed is that it it is the opportunity to participate in commerce. And I've seen some other ones. And part of this is just seeing the the way that this is couched in, in different senses, but also that we're still doing it in memes. Just the idea of even expressing what this is like we only have two frames in Facebook to, to do it. Mm-hmm. And that part of it just suggests to me that people really need to take a look at what actually needs to happen, not only starting from here, moving forward in a way that everybody participates equally, but also addressing the harms of the past that have led us to where we are today. Yeah, totally. I think that this is such a common thing. Like a lot of the universal design imagery is here's this flexible interface for an ATM or whatever. And it's, can we think of an example of something that's not about making or using money? If not, what does that say about how design has been operationalized in our society? Because of course, design often produces things, especially in a commercial or like career way that are paid for through enormous amounts of capital or that are assumed to have a market. If we're trying to do this fuzzy design thinking thing where we're like, everything is design, we design our classrooms and our syllabi and our friendships and our potlucks, we still need to be thinking about what are we trying to create access to. I think that some of the best examples that we can look to are actually in disability arts. Disabled artists are really leading the discourse around disability justice. And part of the reason why is that they're not outside of capitalism at all. Like they have to secure funding and stuff just like everyone else. But the things that they produce and experiment with in terms of access are for a different purpose, for a cultural purpose that is not so much about buying things and is often about challenging capitalism or climate change or whatever. Sins Invalid, the Disabled Performance Mm -hmm. Collective, for example. I just think what they're doing is so interesting and strategic and impactful because they're producing the theory at the same time as they're creating these material forms that challenge all sorts of things And at the end of the day, they're producing art or someone like Alice Shepard. So anyway, yeah, I don't think that anybody would argue against the concept of equity as a goal. But I think that there's a lot more that we can do. Like, what about reparations? Like, right. That like the, a kind of more fundamental restructuring of society. I think a lot about Tanahitsi Coates's essay, where he made the case for reparations before he wrote his book, and just how clearly it demonstrated that yeah, there are all these laws in place to produce equity, the Fair Housing Act, etc. But because Black people in the U.S. have been denied access to generational wealth, there are these enormous barriers that cannot be corrected until reparations are provided. So it's like calling for the this economy itself to be restructured in a similar way with disability how do we even imagine an equitable society for disabled people when the very concept of disability has always been defined as like the outsider to capitalism and if we maintain a commitment to capitalism how can we support and love disabled people i don't know yeah it's 
What's remarkable to me about reparations is as we're recording this, the war in Ukraine is going on and the American politicians talking about how Russia is going to owe reparations to Ukraine. And I, I heard that and I was like, good. It's in your vocabulary. Good, good, good. Let's yes. come back to that later. Yeah. Oh, but it only so, applies outside of our borders, actually. American exceptionalism yeah. at its uh, most yeah. exemplary. Yes. Yeah. So like, let's talk about your hopes and dreams for the future. What are the things that you want to see societally happen in any way that you want to take that? So many things. In these COVID times, I want everyone to keep wearing a mask and if it's possible for them and okay for their body to get vaccinated. And I want consideration of mutual care and support to be at the forefront of how we make decisions about how we structure things like workplaces and schools and access to resources, access to food and groceries. I want the United States federal government to fully fund PCR testing, which they have stopped doing. I want us to be able to take time off work if we get sick. These are things that like seem so basic to me, but they are really forms of access that are incredibly fraught. And there are not basic forms of access to in our present moment. I want there to be universal health care. And I don't want everyone to have to work all the time in order to get access to health care, which in the U.S. is the unfortunate reality. And those are very big things. In a more design sense, I would really like to see design schools put a significant amount of resources into recruiting and training disabled students. And those resources have to include mental health support and all also accessibility support because it is incredibly violent and alienating for someone to be the only person like them in that kind of environment and to have to experience generationally compounded forms of privilege that exist within them. And maybe that could change something over time. Certainly lots of disabled designers exist now that wouldn't have existed prior to the ADA in that in those professions. And I would really like to create that disability design graduate school. And I want all my friends to come teach at it and create different epistemes and different approaches. That, that sounds fantastic. And I appreciate you bringing out specifically the ideas of health around COVID and the vaccination as being an equity issue as well, just because we're talking about people that are immunocompromised. We don't get to just go out and participate. There are still people that are at home. And it drives home the fact that this actually requires people to do things for one another. And that's something that, especially in American culture at this point in time, is not something that is taught, that is made exemplary. Everybody is in it for themselves and mm -hmm. they're complete underclass of people that don't get to have that because yeah. everybody else is taking it. Yeah, absolutely. There were some early moments in the pandemic where a lot of people were doing mutual aid. And I think that a lot of that just fell away or got co-opted. My community had a mutual aid collective just for grocery delivery for elderly and immunocompromised people. And then Instacart came to Nashville and it just disappeared. We're working against the 
individualization that capitalism encourages. And that has all these reverberations like through kind of disability community experiences and other things. And at the same time, I am very lucky to be nourished and sustained by the disability communities that I'm part of. And I want just happy futures for all of us where we have what we need. Great. One final question. Who would you like to celebrate? Who would you like people to pay attention to that you think is doing good work in the field? Um, can I list a couple of people? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Hannah Wong, who is, I think, now a second year architecture student at the Harvard GSD. She's the first blind student who's ever been a student there before and created a disabled students group in her first year while learning remotely and is awesome and is in my lab. And I just think she's so great. Also, Alice Wong, who is behind the Disability Visibility Project and one of our most important cultural producers and really an archivist of disability voices and perspectives and just does so much for our community. Jen White Johnson, who I mentioned earlier, who's just such an amazing graphic designer and has so many great projects that come from the place of if you can change the iconography of something, you can actually change the world. And she's doing amazing work. I'm holding up a zine that she made with her son, Knox, who's autistic, called Autistic Joy. Mm -hmm. She's basically creating a world for Knox where he can understand that he is valuable and that there's nothing wrong with him. Um, Which is very different than many autistic kids. Those three people, I would say, I feel like everyone should get to know their work immediately. Amy Hamright, I want to thank you. I learned so much. This has been uh, fabulous. And yeah, I hope a lot of people come in (laughs) and get the chance to to listen to what you have to say. Thank you so much for doing this, Matt. I really enjoyed talking to you. That's our show. Show notes and transcripts for all NX episodes are available at nx.show. That's I-N-E-X dot show. All episodes are released under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Thanks for listening.